This is the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Now here at the Menopause Movement, we've surveyed over 50,000 menopausal women. And through this, we've discovered that the number one cause of menopausal suffering for our clients is weight gain. Now you've said things like, how do I lose the mental belly? I don't recognize myself anymore. How can I get me back? When menopause hit me out of the blue, I had no idea what was happening. And when I gained about 50 pounds overnight, I hated what I saw in the mirror. The menopause movement exists to provide world-class transformational education to women who are suffering from the symptoms and effects of menopause. And we're here to give you the education you need to get your life back. We want menopause to be the best time of your life. I mean, it is for me, and I want that for you. After years of trial and error, I finally cracked the code with my menopause weight, and now I want to share with you how I did it. I realized that what helped me the most was a challenge. So we've created a challenge for you to help you lose your mental belly. Simply go to menopausemovement.com forward slash challenge to sign up. I'll see you there. Today, we welcome Ayurvedic Dr. Victor Briere to the show. Victor is the co-founder of the International Institute of Ayurveda. He is a gifted pulse reader and specializes in Ayurvedic diagnostic techniques and health counseling. His in-depth individualized approach to health offers clients and students a detailed and encompassing perspective on the underlying causes of imbalance. Victor's approach to wellness emphasizes the role and importance of lifestyle and dietary balance. He offers the support often needed to successfully address the root cause of illness and restore the body to health. During this interview, we talk about what is Ayurveda, the three types in Ayurveda, food cravings and what they mean, the cause of disease, Chinese medicine versus Ayurvedic medicine, menopause and Ayurveda, the right and wrong ways to be vegan, causal factors for menopause, the definition of sleep, a routine to help you get a great night's sleep, meditation, and stay to the end to find out Victor's practical tips to start creating health right now. At the end of the episode, visit menopausemovement.com forward slash blog, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, like and subscribe on YouTube, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Thanks for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a written review yet, please take the time to write a written review for this podcast because it helps more women to find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause because no one should have to go it alone. Thanks again for being a part of the menopause movement. Now, let's get to Victor. Well, Victor Briere, welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Gordon. Yeah. So tell me something. So you're an Ayurvedic doctor, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's just start right there. What the heck is that? I mean, we've had we had Dr. Siri Chan uh, Kalsa on the podcast a while ago, and we talked about food as medicine, and she's also an Ayurvedic doctor, but we kind of went into a rabbit hole of spirituality during that podcast because she's also Sikh and sure. was raised in, in the South. So if you want to hear from another Ayurvedic doctor on the podcast, check out Food is Medicine with Dr. Siri Chan Kalsa. But for you, let's start with, you know, what is Ayurvedic medicine and, and why was it so really cool for you to get into it? Well, Dr. Siri Chan calls us absolutely right. Food is medicine. Ayurveda mm. does a lot with food because food makes up our body. So yeah. Ayurveda says that there are basically a few things that make up our body tissues, food, water, air. And then the last one that most people don't like to consider too much is sense perceptions. So Ayurveda, that kind of gives us this, this hint into what Ayurveda is. Ayurveda is a holistic science par excellence. It is all about the entire being. So no one part of us operates independently from another part. Might have some autonomy, but at the end of the day, it's one one entity acting as a whole. And Ayurveda tries to address that. Okay. There's four types. Is that right? Uh, there, are, there are technically seven types, but there are three main types. Okay. So what we mean by types in Ayurveda is kind of basic body constitution motifs. So we have Vata, Pitta, Kapha. Maybe some of your listeners have heard about those, but those are three of these fundamental forces in nature that Ayurveda uses a lot to describe how things work in nature. 
including our body, because we're natural creatures. We're not separate from uh, nature as much as we like to think we are sometimes. <laughs> um, so, so that gives us this idea that we have these, this special recipe inside each and every one of our bodies. That's a mixture of all three of those fundamental forces. And then we get our unique constitution. So for example, my unique constitution is very high in Pitta, secondarily, and kind of almost evenly, but secondarily Kapha and Vata. But that's going to be different for everyone. And Ayurveda says, don't treat everyone the same when it comes to health. If you have a different basic constitution, you need a different diet, you need different sense perceptions, you need to do different activities to remain in balance. Yeah. So... It's, I think that's really interesting. And I, I went to, uh, so several, several years ago, I went down to Parrot Key, which is a resort in uh, Turks and Caicos. And they had an Ayurvedic doctor there. And so she, you know, we spent a lot of time with her. And she said I was primarily pitta and that I shouldn't eat anything spicy. And I laughed at that because I love spicy food. And I, I was like, and, and like not red meat or something. And these are things that I, that I thrive on. And so it's interesting because for me as a, you know, not only a traditionally trained doctor in America, but to hear that something that I really enjoy was something I shouldn't have. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's uh, something that comes up all the time. And uh, of course, Ayurveda says a lot about it in the old texts. When we're out of balance in some way, we tend to crave what will keep us out of balance. But when we're back in balance, most of those cravings, I won't say all of them, most of them go away. We don't crave the same things we crave when we're out of balance. So you could take plenty of examples. Take someone who has an imbalance with uh, kind of like a more traditionally considered addictive habit. You know, I crave alcohol. I, I really want alcohol. It's, I, you know, I feel good when I drink alcohol. Mm. It's a craving, but no one, no one in the right mind would say, oh yeah, well, you know, that's good for your body. You know, you should go and drink the five beers or whatever, just because you crave it. So the tendency when we are a certain uh, constitution type, like for example, Pitta, we'll have a general tendency to become too much of what we are at times. So Pitta's like the work. They like to work hard, play hard, do everything in extremes. And so, you know, it's like, all right, I'm going to work my butt off in the clinic and then I'm going to go on this excellent vacation. Like, and you know, so it's work for 14, 16 hours a day and then complete rest, nothing in between. And that's when we start to develop a pitta imbalance. And that might feel good to us for a time while we're enjoying the, you know, super intense focus at work and then the complete relaxation and the vacation. But the reality that it does to our bodies over a long span of time tends to create health issues. And that's where we got to balance out our cravings by learning how to curb our temporary cravings so that we could have long-term satiation. Mm, that's, that's really good. So cravings, one of the things that I've noticed, and we've found this to be true in a lot of the women that we work with, is that let's say you have a sugar craving, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. So sugar, sugar is something that we tend to crave, I think, uh, and we eat way too much of it in, in America. I think it's... 77 pounds per person per year now. And, and it's in everything. When they, when they took fat out of stuff, they added sugar. Right. They, the vase they, of the, the yeah. Council, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so what we found is that when you choose to eat more healthy protein, then your sugar cravings will really decrease. And by healthy protein, I mean I'm not. I'm talking about animal flesh probably more than anything else. And I think that I think that Ayurveda is is more on the side of vegetarian veganism. But but that's just something that I've found, and that that I've that that my clients have found that when you know when they eat more healthy protein, they're going to have a lot fewer cravings, especially of things like sugar. Yeah. So sh take a sugar craving for example, and there's some whenever we do have a, a craving, it means that somewhere in our pathology of imbalance, somewhere on that ladder, there is a lack, there's a need for something. 
We may not be able to resolve that lack just by tuning into what we feel like having in the moment, but we should recognize that there is a lack of something and that's why the craving exists mm. or an, uh, an abundance of something. There's too much of something else yeah. could go yeah. either way. No, that's so really sugar good. is sugar's classic. I mean, it's the big one. It's when we have a sugar craving, it's more addictive than most drugs. So there are a few, a few things I'd like to say about that. One is, yes, I completely agree with you. It could definitely be a protein deficiency. I also would like to say I personally am a vegan. The Ayurvedic way of looking at it is not, there actually are appropriate uses for animal protein in Ayurveda. They're typically used medicinally back to like what their doc what Dr. Khalsa said is that, you know, food is medicine. So for example, I have a client right now is severely emaciated. I'm definitely going to give that client animal protein, but actually not for the protein. It's for other, other reasons. Some of the highest sources of protein are plant-based. And as long as you're getting that protein, you're good. Doesn't matter if it comes from an animal or a plant in that sense, in the protein count sense. Mm -hmm. But Ayurveda is going to shy away from thinking of foods just as their nutritional numbers. So we Ayurveda looks at the qualities the food possesses. So not all protein is created equal. Protein from peanuts is different from protein from pumpkin seeds. They have different effects on the body. And the idea that we could just say, okay, how many calories does this have? How many grams of protein? What's the grams of sugar and iron and A, B, C, D, E, F, G? That's not going to give you a whole picture of what that does to your body. And it doesn't account for how your body deals with it. So it says, oh, what's the nutrition? Let me eat that and I'll get that. That's not true if you've got a digestive issue. You're mm -hmm. not going to get what's on the box just by putting it in your mouth and swallowing. So I just, I always like to illuminate that there's a lot more to the story than um, nutritional facts sheets. Yeah. Like I mean, I think when it comes to nutrition, just like, you know, we say this all the time in, in the menopause movement, when it comes to managing menopause, there's no one size fits all answer. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to nutrition, especially because we are all made of unique, you know, the unique DNA and DNA, of course, you know, codes for our proteins. And so it, it's a different way of looking at it. But there is each person is so unique. And what may work for me may not work for you. And that's just, I think that's the beauty of being human. Yeah, the beauty of being human in the art of medicine, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A good doctor is one who could say, hey, you're unique. And let's figure it out for you. Because yeah. it's not going to be there. Of course, there are going to be general themes, but it's not going to be exactly the same. Right. The other thing I really think is super important when it comes to cravings, especially sugar, especially sugar, is that last part of Ayurveda about what makes your body, which is your sense perceptions. And sugar cravings are highly based on our psychological states. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that the psychological state is distinct from the body state. I mean, you know it as well as I do, the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic, sympathetic autonomic nervous system responds to our mental states, I mean, like that, like immediately. And sugar is an extremely powerful mood regulator. I mean, it will change how you feel in your body in two seconds. Yeah. And so when we try and self-regulate from a state of stress to a state of calm, sugar is very effective. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, but the, the thing, short term. Yeah. I think we also have to look at, you know, you talked about psychological triggers and food triggers. And, and I think it's really important for us to really evaluate our relationship with food and what how food was used as some sort of reward when we were children. Food is often used as a reward. And what that does is that can skew our relationship with food as we as we grow up and in, into adulthood. And when we start to feel bad, we reach for that, you know, reward that was maybe a lollipop or ice cream or something sweet. And oftentimes we don't actually see the psychological side of that that is more, you know, that child that maybe needs to be addressed and maybe that child is running that part of our lives. And so I think it's, it's super important. I, I like to, I tell this story about how my dad introduced me to potatoes and he was cooking one day and I was sitting on the counter and he's like, here, try this is just a raw potato with, with salt on it. And, and I was like, oh, that's not bad, you know? And then, you know, he was a chips eater. And so whenever I miss my dad, I find myself craving potato chips. And it was really good to know that because my, my dad passed away uh, in, in 2017, and, and, but he had a, a kind of a long deterioration. So I missed him for a long time. 
And in order to deal with my grief, it was really important for me to recognize what those chip cravings were. And now I almost never eat them. Yeah. I mean, that, that nails it, right? It's food is not just food. That's, that's why we have to look at ourselves as a whole, because we all like to think consciously that we're making choices based on nutrition. But the reality is most of our food choices are tied into our, our emotional states and how we feel in any given moment. Yeah. Um, and that should be honored and, and worked with. I don't think it can be ignored. Right. And we have to yeah. pay attention to that. So getting back to Ayurveda, let's talk a little bit about the difference between an Ayurvedic doctor and say an MD or a DO. Where do you want to start? We got, got, got <laughs> well, all then, you know, why don't we do this? Let's <laughs> Instead of that, why don't we say, why don't you tell us how, so what happens when a patient comes to see you? So how do you treat somebody and what's the, what's the, what are the steps that, that, that they go through when they come to see you? All right. So the first step would be most cases do an initial consultation. So they would come in or these days zoom in. Yeah. Um, and we would talk for about 45 minutes to an hour. Go, th you know, a lot of stuff's going to look the same. Like you fill out a health history, so, so on and so forth. So you come in. And basically the consultation starts the moment you actually schedule because the way in which you go through the scheduling process actually reveals a lot about your constitution and, and your psychological state and what you're looking for and what you need. So some people, they don't want to talk to me. They just want to click a button and schedule the appointment. Okay. That, that says something, nothing's good or bad. It just, it's information. And then other people, they want to have an email exchange five, six times, get on the phone, make sure, you know, so on and so forth. So that's starting to actually, the communication starts then. What's going on? What does this person need? And how are they going to get helped? And then they walk into the office, how they walk into the office matters, what they look like matters. Are they standing tall? Are they sad? Are they happy? All that stuff. They sit down in the chair and we start to talk. In that conversation, we're going to look at some of their, we're going to do some vitals, blood pressure, you know, the usual thing. But what's kind of different with Ayurveda or someone like me, at least, is I'll read your pulses Ayurvedically. Mm -hmm. So that's a very sophisticated art. It can tell a lot about what's going on on the inside of someone's body, the vital organ states, what their constitution is, the activity of the doshas, vata, pitta, kapha, where they've gone out of balance and what that pathology looks like. Because Ayurveda wants to get to the root cause. It's all good to deal with symptoms, but what is the bottom layer creating this issue inside your body? Mm. That's going to go on. Also look at your tongue, just like a Chinese doctor would, a traditional Chinese medicine doctor would, and so on and so forth. And all this time, a conversation's going on. And the whole time, the Ayurvedic doctor is trying to get to what is driving the imbalance. So Ayurveda says there are three main things that cause all disease at a base layer. One is misuse of the sense organs and the suppression of natural urges or the misuse of natural urges. So for example, simple explanation is, let's say someone's holding their bowels, they're constipated. That's going to count as a suppression of a natural urge. But let's also say someone comes in and you know they're talking very quiet and you can barely hear them. Mm -hmm. They're suppressing their natural urge to speak. You can tell that inside that person's nervous system, there's a suppression going on. And of course, that's going to get into the psychology of that person. That's one. Second one is a uh, what's called a misuse of wisdom actually creates disease in the body. And that's a really interesting one. So it's the kind of thing where I know what to do, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> I know I should stop drinking. I know I should stop smoking. I know I should stop eating ice cream at 10 p.m. at night, but I'm not going to. So that that's called a crime against wisdom. And the reason that creates disease is because it sets up a duality inside of us. And then that affects our attitude and state in which we walk around the world. So I know I should heal. I want to heal. There's a part of me that wants to heal and there's a part of me that doesn't. And I'm going to live in that tension and stress until I get so sick that I'm forced to make a, one choice or the other. You know, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that that's a, it's a universal kind of problem, right? Why do I do the thing that I don't want to do, right? I mean, that St. Paul said that, and I don't remember which letter, but he talks, he talks a lot about the, th the thorn in his side. I think it's one of the Romans letters. And he's like, why do I, why do I keep, you know, keep doing the thing that I don't want to do? And I think that's like, like the human condition that there are things we know that we should do 
and we choose not to uh, because of whatever story we tell ourselves around that thing. And I, I know for me, it was getting back into exercise and moving my body. And I felt like I had to do, I had to do it all. If, if I went, it was, it was an all or nothing kind of mentality. And that's what was holding me back. And it wasn't like, Hey, just, you know, walk 10 minutes a day and see if you can improve a little bit, you know, every week. It was more along the lines of, well, you got to go back to lifting weights, like hardcore and, and all that. And that's the story I told myself. And so I just kept myself back and I just kept getting heavier and heavier. And, and then when menopause hit, of course, it was another 50 pounds. And I was like, Oh my God, I got to figure something out. And that's when I really discovered that if, if you just take small steps and not, not, you know, let, let go of all the perfection and then you can make big changes. Yeah. So that's the journey of a pizza, right? <laughs> it's, it's no joke that a pizza wanted to say, Oh, it's all or nothing. I'm either going to, you know, become the champion fitness person of the universe or forget it <laughs> and then the the journey of a balanced pitta is learning how to do things in small increments whereas yeah. someone who's got more of a kapha constitution they need that like tony horton p90x person to jump in the room and say get off the couch get up and start working <laughs> out until like you can't lift a muscle anymore so the approach changes based on our constitution yeah. But yeah, it's a huge, I mean, that's why they talk about it in the Ayurvedic texts. It is a major driver of a human condition that over time makes us sick. Yeah. And then that is the third cause of disease in Ayurveda is time. The only one that's not curable, by the way. I, so, I like to think, it, I mean, I have a very different view of time. And as I've gotten older, um, time is never an issue for me. I, I just do what I can with whatever time I have, because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so arbitrary and such a, in such a made up construct. And once we understand that it, I think, I think it really, it gave me a whole lot of freedom. It's like, okay, well, this has to go live at this time. So how can I be ready for it? Or how can I, what can I get done in this time that I have? And I'll just do the best and then fix it along the way. But it has really, it, it especially outside of surgery. So, you know, surgeon by trade and, you know, in surgery, you just, you never worry about the time that's passing. It's always about, you know, what's right in front of you. That was what was the greatest part about being a surgeon was that the, the requirement of being present in the moment all the time at a high level. That was, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. Certainly keep you focused. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's been interesting to, as I've, as I've transitioned out of, out of medicine since I think I, July last year was the end of it for me when I when I completely retired and and to move into taking the the best parts of the excellence that I learned the high performing into these new skills that I've had as we've as we build the menopause movement it's been it's been really fun and it's also been interesting to step back and take a look at it as I change as I become more of a you know more of whoever it is I'm supposed to be and release. <laughs> There's so much releasing going on. So, okay. So, so you look at people's tongues, you check their pulses and, and I've been to Chinese doctors, they do the same thing. So how is it different then? Chinese medicine and Ayurveda share the same roots. Okay. There are a lot of similarities. I mean, the big differences, Chinese medicine evolved in a different way, especially in the West, right? We kind of use acupuncturists as synonymous with a traditional Chinese medicine uh, doctor, which is unfair, really. It's Acupuncture is one small part of traditional Chinese medicine, yeah. but they evolved from the same roots. And so they're, the basic philosophy is the same in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, but an Ayurvedic doctor is going to give you different herbs. They're probably going to have some different food suggestions. And there is a slightly different way of looking at the whole, whole picture. And, you know, it's a lot of the Ayurvedic therapies are very unique. So if no one's experienced, listener hasn't experienced an Ayurvedic therapy before, they're wonderful. Most of them, not all of them, most of them are very blissful. Some of them are quite <laughs> challenging to receive, but those are only done in very specific cases. So a lot of Ayurvedic therapies use these herbal oils that you, you know, completely, you know, the tradi most traditional Ayurvedic therapy is called an Abhyanga, which is an oil massage with a specialized herbal oil that is selected for your body. And then you get two massage therapists massaging you in sync, one on the left and one on the right for the entire massage. And that, that sounds wonderful, right? I mean, who doesn't want that? But there's a very specific pur purpose for that is it, is it really sends you into your parasympathetic nervous system when that synchronicity is happening in your body. It has a very potent effect on, on your neurology and your state of mind. 
And then in that state, you can, you start to heal a lot faster than if you are trying to heal by running around Los Angeles in traffic while taking, you know, a protein supplement and, and hoping that you can make it to work on time. Yeah. Um, that's, you're not going to heal in that, in those conditions. So the idea is that you intentionally place yourself in a healing space and you allow others to help you enter a healing space. And then your healing starts to really happen. Um, your body starts to balance itself out. The body's always seeking balance from the day you're born till the day you die. Yeah, that's the that's the role of homeostasis. And yeah. I think I think that's the, I've I've had those treatments. I had a, a a couple times when I was at that resort, and one of them that I'll I'll always remember was a uh, just this pouring of oil right here, and just the, the feeling of kind of floating. That's, that was pretty cool. You still have to get yeah. vulnerable. I mean, I was naked. And so, you know, <laughs> it's like, it is a little bit vulnerable. So yeah, that's, a, that's called Shirodara. And that's actually a wonderful therapy specifically for people suffering from some hormonal issues, mm. going through menopause. Yeah. It, it's a constant flow of oil with this special like copper turnip that hangs above your head. Mm -hmm. And it goes back and forth. And it really affects your pituitary function, um, which if anyone knows about the pituitary, it obviously has a huge effect on our hormone levels and thyroid and on and on and on. I mean, sure, go down yeah. the list, right? So yeah, a lot of these Ayurvedic therapies, they on the surface, it's like, oh, oil, but actually there's a very deep wisdom and impact that they have. Mm -hmm. And when done in certain combinations in certain timeframes with the right, you know, pushing the right buttons, they can have a huge effect. Yeah. And so, so just, um, so I understand where did you learn, uh, Ayurvedic medicine? Did you go to Kerala or? I went to, so there's a Ayurvedic school in the United States called Kerala Ayurveda Academy. What was that? 11 years ago. It's looking very different now than it is, uh, then than it is now. Yeah. Ayurveda is becoming hugely popular. Like within the past five years, it's just exploding. Mm -hmm. So when I started, there was not even an Ayurvedic doctor in the United States. Now there is. So I'm an Ayurvedic doctor, but I started off my career as an Ayurvedic practitioner and that was it. You couldn't go beyond that. Now it's a four-year program or five-year program or something like that. But I did actually go to India. I've been to India multiple times. I've been to, I trained in Kerala, which is Southern India. Yeah. And uh, Pune, which is near Mumbai. And it's an, it's like in Western medicine, it, you're learning forever. You're training forever. I have like you know, two major, two or three major mentors that I meet with constantly. And it's just ongoing. Sure. And I did mean, you learn to, did you learn Sanskrit? I picked up a lot of Sanskrit, but no, I did not formally learn the Sanskrit language. Um, not my forte in Ayurveda. I spent my time learning pulses instead. I got it. Yeah. So <laughs> my understanding is that Ayurveda comes from Kerala, India, Southwestern India. And that's the, that's the birthplace of Ayurveda. And I was Man, I really want to go there, but right now we can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't go there right now. But if you do yeah. decide to go there, I could recommend a few places for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 gonna be, you know, it's gonna be so long before we can travel. Yeah. We, you know, we have to turn we have to turn COVID into the flu uh before we can do that. So right. So when it comes to so so menopause, I mean it I know from my friends who are Chinese medicine practitioners, they there was no word in Chinese for menopause for years until recently. And so with menopause being as disruptive as it is, we know that what we choose to put in our mouths and what, what's available now, because especially in America with everything being corporate food, you know, we put food in quotes. Yes, it's a lot of disruption of hormone uh, production because especially because of seed oils. And if you want to know more about seed oils, make sure you check out my, I have, I did a podcast with Dr. Kate Shanahan, who is big on the seed oil thing. So I did two with her. So check those out. But so menopause was never, I think, an issue until we started having these, this, this disruption of our food supply. And so what, what does Ayurveda say about menopause? A lot. And yeah, thank you for bringing some of that stuff up. It is, it, it was a big deal in Ayurvedic medicine, even five plus thousand years ago and just honored as a natural transition life. And so for the most part, it is not described as the way it happens now. So of course there were issues that arise during menopause because during any transformation, major transformation a body goes through, 
we lose our homeostasis temporarily and in a multitude of ways. And the body is supposed to be able to adapt to that, but there can be problems in that adaptation when it's rebalancing. So they're, you know, late menopause, early menopause, some weight gain or sleep issues or hormonal issues, or you name it. I mean, the list goes on. And so many of those are described in the Ayurvedic texts, but they are way more intense now than they used to be. I mean, the idea, the description of a healthy menopause in Ayurveda is that basically, you know, sometime in your 50s, maybe early 60s, you go through menopause, a woman goes through menopause, and she should not gain a bunch of weight, she should not dry out, she should not experience hot flashes. It should be a very gentle transition. And that's mm -hmm. about it. How which many of us wish that was that was true for us? <laughs> yeah, which which is obviously not what's happening now. And yes, I completely agree with you. So much of it is based on one, our food choices, but two, it's not just a choice. I mean, the options that are presented to us that are easily accessible, it's really getting worse. I mean, it's bad. Mm -hmm. I personally, I mean, and this isn't even per, uh, perfect, but you know, stay away from packaged food. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I mean and, well, the other thing is, is that is, is I think there's a lot of danger actually in veganism, because people think that they're eating foods that are good for them, because they are not made with animal products, but they're eating vegan cheese, which is made primarily from vegetable oil. And that was terrible. Like, and like weird whey protein, you know, byproducts of the milk industry and the dairy industry. And so I think it's really important to realize that, you know, like this, this vegan cheese stuff may feel like cheese in your mouth, but it's made up of poison. And so, I mean, if you're going to be a vegan, then just eat plants. Yeah, there, there's, there's a right way to be a vegan and a wrong way to be a vegan, for sure. And so think about it. When these traditional me medicinal systems were going on and people in general were a lot healthier. There was no vegan cheese. <laughs> I mean, that stuff doesn't exist. That stuff is created because some people want to make a lot of money really fast, right? Yeah. Um, and, and serve the masses in just a like, you know, factory line type way. That's not how we treat an organic entity like our body. It's not built for that. So yeah, if you're going to be vegan, you got to do it. And I talk to, I coach people on how to be a vegan all the time. You got to be eating fresh fruit, vegetable, nuts, seeds all day long. And, you know, you can't, you can't go and, and have a bunch of, you know, gluten-free vegan cookies at Whole Foods and pretend like you're eating plant-based. That's not, that's not it. I, I like to tell people yeah. that when you eat stuff out of a package, that's always... That's always a a treat if you're going to have it, but it's all it should it should it's not really something that you want to make a habit of. And you know, we learned from Dr. Kate Shanahan, nature doesn't make bad fats, and so it's okay to eat normal natural fats, animal fats, things that come from nature. If you're if you're, if you're vegan, obviously you're not going to eat animal fats, but you're going to eat things like peanut butter, and you're going to you know, and that's just peanuts and salt. You know, watch watch out for peanut butter because they put sugar in it. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, it's so disgusting when it's filled with sugar, I think. Um, but you can make your own. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, and then and then you have, you know, the the fast food companies that have labs that all the the only thing they want to do is hit your addiction centers. And so even eating, you know, it, what the Wonder Burger, whatever, what, whatever that thing is, what a burger, I don't eat Wonder Burger, the, the burger that tastes like a burger, but it's made with vegan it Impossible. Burger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What well, I've never had it, but it, because it's filled with with nasty stuff. It's, Agreed. It's, it's yeah. So I I know plenty of people who are when when I was working, there was an anesthesiologist who was always you know was touting veganism, but he was eating that kind of crap. I'm like, you know, do you realize what you're putting in your mouth that that it's just poison? I would rather eat a steak than put that in my mouth. You know, and then. Every once in a while when the guy would do, he was a triathlete and he would do a triathlon and he'd always eat meat afterwards. I mean, yeah, there's the op option I opt for is I don't eat a steak and I eat whole, whole foods. Yeah. That, it's not like, you know, it's, yeah, of course, once in a while, you know, of course, I'm not going for 100%, but I'm about 98%. Mm -hmm. And I reap the benefits of that. And the, the, it's not just me, the people I live around and the people I help are all doing that. And they, you know, you can literally see them healing before your eyes. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is definitely a wrong way to be vegan and, and it, the pitfalls are real. I mean, 
It's you walk through whole, even a place like Whole Foods these days, there's a produce section and literally 80% of the entire market is processed packaged foods. Yeah. Make it easy for people to, to buy that. And we think that because it's easy or convenient, it might be better for us. And there's just a lot of miseducation out there. Yeah. And it's advertised as, yeah, it's advertised as good for you. And it's just not true. Yeah. So in your outline here, you talk about the biggest causal factors of menopause related to, to issues that we wouldn't know about. So it sounds mysterious. Ah, so yes. What is, what yes. is that? Yeah. So I think food, food's one. Food's one. You know, I'm glad we touched on that. And that starts when you're young. So the way you eat when you're 20 uh, is going to affect your menopause to a certain extent. I mean, let's not go crazy with it, right? right? Because of course, if you change your change your ways by the time you're 25, you're going to erase any damage you've done. But most people aren't doing that, right? They start eating a certain way and they just kind of continue eating that way. Then maybe they modify it a little bit, but for the most part, they just eat that way. That's what I mean. That's mm -hmm. going to affect the menopause. The big, one of the big things in, in Ayurveda, there are, there are these three pillars of, relate, of health, meaning if these go away, you're kind of in trouble. One is food and water and what we've already talked about. Another is sleep, your quality of sleep, how you sleep, your circadian rhythm, that kind of stuff. If that is not doing so well, then that's another pillar of health. So if you're missing two pillars of health, you're probably going to start a pathology over a long span of time. And then the third is the traditional texts say sex, which it is sex. It's the act of sex. The act of sex has a very strong impact um, on our bodies, but also it's not just sex, it's relationship. The way in which you go about having intimate relationships, and that's not just relationship with the spouse or partner or whatever, that's all intimate relationships, the way you relate to your children, the way you relate to your best friend, the way you relate to your dog, whatever. That has a huge, huge impact on your health profile and a massive impact on menopause. Hmm. So let's just take a quick snapshot of the United States right now. Lonelier than it's ever been in existence. The number of people that are reporting that they have people that they can rely on is dropping, going down. And I think actually now it's like zero or one, where it used to be an average of seven, hmm. not too long ago. Depression rates through the roof, right? The prescription or prescribing pharmaceuticals for depression, anxiety is like crazy high right now. And divorce rate, massive. And now I'm not saying that, you know, we can dig into those stats and dissect them. And I'm not interested in that. Just get the general vibe, right? It's going the wrong direction. <laughs> and yes, that's having a huge impact on our on on what's going on with the oh, with uh, menopause, early menopause, late menopause. What we do to try and save our relationships is having a big effect on our health profile. I'm having fertility issues and so I get a bunch of IVF therapies. Of course that's going to affect your hormone profile. That's what yeah. it does. That's what it is. And then that's going to affect menopause. True. And the symptoms we have going through it. I say we like I'm going to go through it, but um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So the thing is, is that, you know, you talk about food, you talk about sleep and one of the biggest, so, so the, num I, we've surveyed tens of thousands of women here at the menopause movement and the, with, you know, overwhelmingly the biggest, the biggest complaint is the, you know, I need to lose weight. And so, yeah. our, you know, our main, our main product is a weight loss challenge to help women kind of get control there. But then the very next one is I'm not sleeping. And there's because of what's happening with the loss of estrogen, there is this whole like it, there's an anxiety that comes. And with that anxiety, you can get palpitations. And then when it's time to sleep, it's, it's really hard to turn off your mind. And so for me, what happened with me was I had to learn how to meditate it because I couldn't, I could, I wasn't sleeping. I mean, once I learned how to meditate, then I was able to take some of those skills to calm everything down before bed. And that, that helped, or even in bed in the middle of the night, when I, when I woke up, I was able to kind of get back and manage, but not everyone's going to want to meditate. And, and so do you have any tips for sleep? Because sleep is a big problem in menopause. Yeah, a lot. And you know, I know that the reality is that weight is the first complaint, but it should be sleep because you're not going to really lose weight unless you're sleeping in a healthy way. 
Yeah. That's another, I mean, that's another whole huge rabbit hole we could go down is the realities of weight loss and the lies of our culture in that. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so sleep. Okay. Number one is sleep's all about Vata in Ayurveda. Vata is the thing that creates movement of all kinds in our body, including nervous system impulses and things like that. So stress anxiety is going to keep you in your sympathetic nervous system. It's going to keep your nervous system very active and it's going to make sleep harder. The definition of sleep in Ayurveda is when the mind withdraws itself from the sense organs. Mm-hmm. That's the technical definition. So you got to withdraw yourself from your sense organs. So what does that mean in real life? What it means is, let's say you go to bed at 10, which is the time you should be falling asleep by based on the natural rhythm of the day and night. At about eight o'clock, especially if you're having sleep issues, you want to start ramping your sense impressions down. Screens go off, phones go off, lights get dim or off. No really intense stimulation of any kind including eating lots of sugar. No food at all, actually, would be ideal. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So put on very mellow background music, right? Not so you're dealing with your ears, dealing with your eyes, with the visual stuff. And so like watching an action movie, not a good idea. Watching any movie, not a good idea. Because even a romantic comedy is you know, the music and the, uh, and then there's always that scene where it's like, dun, 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 you know, <laughs> of course, whatever. there's always tension. There yeah, has to be tension in every, every movie. Yeah. Right. So, and then, so we've dealt with the taste, right? We're not going to eat any food. We've dealt with the ears. We've dealt with the eyes and now touch, get in a bath, right? Get a massage from a partner. If you're fortunate enough to be in that position. Give yourself a massage. And there's a beautiful Ayurvedic way of doing that. Have beautiful aromas that you place around. So all that stuff actually has a really big effect on our nervous system. And it's it's telling your nervous system, especially if you do it day after day, you start to train your body. It's telling your nervous system, calm down, ramp down, start producing melatonin. And then finally you slip into bed, hopefully you're nice and calm, your body's relaxed, and then your mind withdraws from your sense organs very easily. If you look over at the clock and it's midnight and you just finished, you know, whatever, a net Netflix series or whatever, and you're all charged up and you say, oh crap, I got to get up in five hours for work. And you get that feeling inside and you run and you go into bed and you're all stressed out because now you're not gonna be able to sleep and you're anticipating tomorrow being just like miserable. Your nervous system <laughs> is not going to ramp down. Your mind's not going to withdraw from the sense organs. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because uh, I follow this guy, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. And he, do you know who he is? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, he really brought Eastern medicine to the, or Eastern religion to the Western world back in 1920. And he, he really started a whole lot of pretty interesting stuff. But he talks about how when you do your meditation right, you're withdrawing from the senses. Exactly. I've never been able to do that. You know, he says, he, t- he says, he says, well, you're going to withdraw from the five telephone senses. I'm like what? <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, I, I mean, there's a special way of breathing and, and I'll, and it's just after a while, I was like, nothing's happening. I'm not going to keep doing this. It's weird. Um, you know, but I suppose it's just a practice like anything else. Well, meditation is is a big deal, right? I mean, people spend their whole lives mastering meditation. But I can say there are two gateways to meditation that most yoga practices, and I'm not talking about core power yoga at the gym or something like that, actual yoga practices, like the one you're engaged with, right? Yoga yoga is really breathing, but yeah. Yeah, yes, thank you. Pranayama, (laughs) right? Uh, Breath practice. Yeah. And there's a really cool thing about that. So the autonomic nervous system, which I'm harping on, is automatic, it's auto, and it controls heart rate, breath rate, all that stuff, but we have conscious control of our breath as well. So the breath is a bridge between nervous systems, and you can pretty directly affect your autonomic nervous system pretty intensely with breathing practices. Yes. So training your body to respond to your conscious breath is fundamental for self-control or self-regulation or whatever words we want to use. And 
it's, I mean, I, you know, if like someone's interested in being healthy or getting balanced, I don't see a real way to do it without taking on a breath practice. Yeah, I think that's really good. There's a book recently that that was published by James Nestor called Breath. And we we talk a lot. Uh, I actually talked with one of my colleagues from medical school, Dr. Michelle Veneziano. She's up by where you are, she's somewhere near Santa Rosa. And, and we talked about the healing power of the tongue and how putting the tongue in certain places can really heal yourself and understanding certain types of breathing. You know, for a long time, I was taping my mouth shut at night and then I, then I stopped. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I did find that I was getting up less to go to the bathroom and, and things like that. And so that, that book breath by James Nestor is pretty good. Have you read that one? I have it on my shelf right now. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. It's book. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing about this is all these techniques have been around for a really, 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 really long time. I mean, really long. And the knowledge is there. And it's so it's it's great. Uh, like a book like Breath, it's great. Get it, read it, all that stuff, right? But also read it in the context that it's not new. The, just because there have been studies done on it now, it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't wisdom before yeah. and real. And yeah, and so... I think that, but I think the, that's great because what that means is like, you have all these places you can get this information now and there are so many roads to it and it's there, it's waiting for you and it's your birthright. I mean, it's like, you don't have to live in the, the fast food world and the more people who stop, the, the more other things will be created that replace that. Yeah, I, I think that's really good. And remember that medicine's been around for a long time. And, you know, healing, it was always healing. It was the medicine man, the medicine woman, the the shaman, the healer. And something happened in, I would say, the industrial revolution, where we rejected every, almost everything spiritual, and maybe the enlightenment, you know, way if you go way back, but we rejected the spiritual side of healing and said, well, it has to be evidence-based. And so it's almost like what we're teaching now in, you know, teaching our medical students and teaching, you know, anybody who, who does healthcare, that it has to be evidence-based, that it's like rejecting a whole part of us. That's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, said beautifully. And, and even that is, is funky how it, it gets said that evidence-based, well, what they mean is I need a certain type of study that's this, this, this double blind. That's a very specific way of knowing something, which is great, but it's not the only way of knowing something. I mean, you want evidence, experience it for yourself. Go ahead. I mean, all listeners can sit down tonight and take 10 truly deep, calm, slow breaths. Yeah. There's your evidence. See what happens. I promise you something's going to happen. Yeah. I teach this thing called, we call it the pause. And when you, you know, when you start to feel really, really crazy and things are not going your way or you're feeling out of control, just stop, just stop and pause. And, and before you say anything, before you react, before you do anything, stop and pause and take 10 breaths. That's what I teach. And it's helped me so much because I used to just always react all the time and just discovering how to control my reactions has been, I mean, I was always the one to just like blurt out something at zero filter and, and I still, I mean, I still don't have much of a filter. I will say that, but, <laughs> but I'm better. Uh, I actually do think about things before I say them now. They don't just come out. I have a little bit more self-control. And, and that was, th that was an interesting lesson for me. And I didn't learn it until I was, you know, well into my adulthood. So we don't have much time left. And so I want to know, why don't you talk about a few practical tips that we can start doing today to create more health in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. They're in my top three that I always like to, to pass out if someone's like, okay, just, you know, because I get asked this question, just don't do the whole workup on me. Just give me like the most important things, which obviously is not the Ayurvedic approach, but hey, I get it. Um, <laughs> it's the American <laughs> approach. Yeah, the American <laughs> approach. How can I get really healthy without having to do anything? Right on. Um, yeah. So number one, don't eat after 6 p.m. There are a lot of reasons for that. The digestive process, going to sleep, all that stuff. It's It takes up so much of our energy and our most of our rejuvenation happens during sleep. Most of our hormone balancing happens during sleep. Sleep is like our body's time to repair. Okay. Uh, I, but I just have to say that, have you ever been to Europe? Dinner is at I like 10 p.m. I have been to Europe many times. Yes. And, and they're, they don't suffer. I mean, even, you know, when you, when you go to France, right. And they're, they, they have their meals and they spend 
hours over their meals because it's just a time to be with people and pleasure. And then you have, you know, in Spain where dinner isn't until 10 or 11 p.m. at night. How do you how do you balance that? Easily. That's one factor. There are about 5,000 factors in your health. Okay. So, but you, you touched on a few of them, right? So w Americans do pretty much everything wrong. Uh, eat late, <laughs> eat heavy, eat fast, don't communicate with each other, don't enjoy long meals where they're around family and friends and they're, you know, like all that stuff. Eat in front of the TV, fast, frozen, da, da, da. So I would rather you eat dinner at 9 p.m. in Spain, surrounded by loved ones, while eating a very light meal because they don't always eat super heavy late at night, right? And make sure that that meal is at least an hour and a half long. And what else can I say? You know, the story goes on. Then I would have you eat at 6 p.m. hardly noticing what you just swallowed and in front of a TV while you're watching a horror movie and de-stressing from a terrible day at work. Right. So that being said, but in a perfect world, the people in Spain and France would also eat at 6 p.m. and do all the other food practices that they're doing. So that's one. And then the second one is wake up before 6 a.m. Wake up or get out of bed? Out of bed. Okay. Out why, of bed. Why is and, that? Uh, it's for circadian rhythm. So out of bed right before sunrise, basically. And then and immediately start a yoga practice, tai chi practice, whatever, breathing practice, exercise practice, but not like crazy extreme, you know, blow your blow your skeletal system apart exercise practice, something that's actually balancing for your body, whatever that is. And of course, there are ways to find that out. And then the, the third one I like to say is sip on hot water all throughout the day, hot. keeps your metabolism going, it helps your system cleanse, not uh, not not room temperature and not cold. Room temperature is okay. Hot water is better. Cold is out. The body has to heat that up. Yeah. Body has to, the body has to heat that up. And then it, it also, um, you know, cold contracts. Yeah. And it does. That's what, I mean, that's its action. So yeah. yeah. Right. And um, cold does not have the same properties of upper GI cleansing that hot water does. Well, those which are great the tips. We all need. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement today. Was there anything else you were hoping to share with the audience? Oh man, we could go on forever, <laughs> but I think we should, I th we have to have a stopping point, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you? You can find me easily through my website. I'm with the International Institute of Ayurveda. Okay. And so the website's www.iiayurveda.com. All right. Well, thanks so much again. And I hope to have you back to talk a little bit more about hormones and menopause. Anytime. Happy to do All it. Right. Thanks so much. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. This is why I've created this brand new course called Understanding Your Hormones and Managing Your Menopause. I want to show you how you can get on top of your menopause right now so that you can start to see it as the best time of your life. Now, this course is valued at $500 and is in the beta testing phase. And we're currently accepting applications for women to test it out for us at no charge in exchange for feedback and testimonials. But the best part is because you're a podcast listener, you can bypass the application process and go straight to the front of the line. To register right now, simply visit menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones and we can get started together right now. Remember, you can get started right now at no charge to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials when you go to menopausemovement.com forward slash hormones. And I'll see you inside the course. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. Thank you.